0: that sense of I'm where I'm supposed to be well done my good and faithful servant that's what makes it all worth it all I mean there's definitely disappointments there's definitely heartaches um, things don't always turn out the way you want them to be but just to know that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing and that God's approval is on my life makes it all worthwhile This is
1: B-Sides for Everything Between Sundays. I'm Pastor Brandon McCulloch. The voice at the opening was Pastor Mike Wisner of Twin Peaks Community Church. We will hear from him in a moment. We have begun the book of Jeremiah, and I am so excited to be teaching through this book. His raw emotion and imagination, which helps lead those whose world is falling apart. Is so relevant for today. Not only do we have in our own lives things that feel like they're falling apart, not only is life in itself fragile and on the fringe of falling apart constantly, but we live in a world where disaster and chaos seems to be one of the new norms. The voice of Jeremiah is more needed than ever. In a world increasingly filled with fear where we constantly want to retreat and sacrifice freedom for security, Jeremiah's imagination comes in to remind us, do not underestimate God and do not overestimate evil. This message Jeremiah learns from the two visions that God gives him in Jeremiah chapter one, the almond branch and the boiling pot. The prophetic imagination, this is what I'm compelled by and drawn to in the book of Jeremiah. And there is this Old Testament scholar named Walter Brueggemann, who has actually coined the phrase, the prophetic imagination. He says this about the task of prophets. He says the task of prophetic ministry is to nurture, nourish, and evoke a consciousness and perception, alternative To the consciousness and perception of the dominant culture around us. In another place, he says, It is the vocation of the prophet to keep alive the ministry of imagination. To keep on conjuring and proposing futures alternative to the single one the king, or the world system, wants to urge as the only Thinkable one. In short, through Jeremiah, God wants us to be a people who, in the face of a world that tells us to imagine less, chooses to imagine more. Because God's word is living and active. It's creative and playful. It is powerful and poetic. And so Jeremiah invites us not to take the text and put it into our world, but it wants to invite our world and situation into the text itself. To visualize and imagine what Jeremiah is describing and see us in it. That is the task of Jeremiah the prophet. And in the message, we talked a lot about how imagination is powerful. I want to read to you something from James K.A. Smith about the power of imagination. He says, Rather than being pushed by beliefs, we are pulled by a telos, or an end, that we desire. It's not so much that we're intellectually convinced and then master the willpower to pursue what we ought. Rather, we are attracted to a vision of the good life that has been painted for us in stories and myths, images and icons. It is not primarily our minds that are captivated, but rather our imaginations that are captivated. And when our imagination is hooked we're hooked. Those visions of the good life that capture our heart have thereby captured ourselves and begin to draw us toward them, however implicitly or tacitly. The goods and aspects of human flourishing painted by these alluring pictures of the good life begin to seep into the fiber of our being and thus shape Our decisions, actions, and habits. Thus, we become certain kinds of people. We begin to emulate, mimic, and mirror the particular vision that we desire. Attracted by it and moved toward it, we begin to live into this vision of the good life and start to look like citizens who inhabit the world that we picture as the good life we become little microcosms of that envisioned world as we try to embody it in the here and now. So many of the penultimate decisions, actions, and paths we undertake are implicitly and ultimately aimed at trying to live out the vision of the good life that we love and thus want to pursue. Friends, we are not pushed by beliefs or rules or commands, but we are pulled by a vision of desire, a vision of a good life, our imagination. And that is how Jeremiah is going to lead the people of Israel. That's how he wants to lead us. When God shows Jeremiah the almond branch and says as it blossoms know that my word too will come into fruition one of the things we need to understand is that this won't happen immediately we need to lean into the vision of the world God has and imagine its possibilities in the here and now But that does not necessarily mean that we have to beat our heads against the wall until it collapses. The almond branch, as Tom and Merton points out from this text, blossoms in silence. The almond branch is indifferent to the activity of humans to our successes, our failures, our busyness, our laziness. It's completely indifferent to the fact that we're inventing or not inventing, going to work or not going to work. The almond branch blossoms in silence. And he goes on to explain how it's therefore silence which is real. And noise, especially the noise that the kings of the world, the empires of the world want to infiltrate into our lives, the noise of activity and busyness and accomplishment and we've got to do this or the world won't continue to spin on its axis, that, he says, is the illusion. Yet we live in a system that wants us to think that that noise generated by humans is the reality. But the prophet and what God shows Jeremiah is no, no. The almond blossoms in silence. And so the best way to not underestimate God, the best way to have a sense of his nearness and his presence that he's here and now is to step out of the traffic. To be still and know that he is God. To enter into the stillness and silence that is the constant and steady reality behind, beneath, and underneath all of the noise and activity of humanity. That is where we will see the almond branch, blossom. That is where we will hear the word of God and see its imaginative force blossoming in our minds and our vision and our heart. That's where it takes root. And that's where we will see the vision of the kingdom of God on this earth. And that will pull us into this vision And we will begin to shape our decisions and our lives and our longings and our loves to look like citizens of that world. A world that is alternate and different from the one we are incessantly presented with by conventional culture, status quo, the king and the empire. We were made for more than this world system. So don't let it tell you you are only a youth. Don't let it tell you to imagine less and stop fantasizing, stop dreaming, but rather let the prophetic imagination pull us into a new landscape, a new world, an alternate reality that says, imagine more. In this final segment, I'm interviewing Pastor Mike Wisner. Pastor Mike is a local pastor at Twin Peaks Community Church, actually only about a mile up the road from our own fellowship. He's known for his ability to engage and connect with a variety of ages, from children all the way up to seniors. He has made a mark on this community with his Bible and his balloons. Like Jeremiah, He heard God's call and responded, and like Jeremiah, Pastor Mike strikes me as the kind of guy who can sit under the almond branch and see it blossom. Never in a hurry, never overly ambitious, but patiently building a community of family, his church sees God at work in relationships. In this interview, we hear, like Jeremiah, his call into the ministry. What was your spiritual upbringing like?
0: Were you raised in a Christian home? Like, What was that like? Just the opposite. I was raised in a non-Christian home, alcoholic, fighting parents kind of home. There were five of us kids, and uh, we were often neglected. I was kind of the oldest, so in charge of the kids. And eventually ended up with my parents uh, separating, and the five of us kids ended up in foster homes because it wasn't uh, a parent capable of really taking care of us. Wow. Yeah. So were you in a foster home? For seven years. Seven years. Yeah, never went back to the family. Uh, We were in different foster homes spread out. Um, I had a a God uh, awareness. I prayed even though I wasn't a Christian. Mm -hmm. I knew there was a God. Uh, I think this is God's way of pulling me out of that place where I wouldn't meet him to put me into a place where I would meet him. Mm. What I mean by that is the Christian foster family that I ended up with uh, introduced me to church, and within uh, six, seven months of being in that foster home, I became a Christian as a junior hire. Uh, they brought me to a Billy Graham crusade where I went forward, received Christ, and from junior high on, uh, I've never strayed away from it. It was, it was kind of like the puzzle pieces fit together, all this awareness that I had of God came true mm. uh, when I became a, a Christian through this foster family. Uh, that was uh, back in 1969.
1: 1969, and so this foster family introduces you to Christ. Do yeah. you Are you still in touch with this family?
0: Um, what happened is I went on to become a, a youth pastor in the same church where I was saved, And so I became the pastor to my foster parents. So somehow God, in his miracle, went from uh, little boy Mike, pitiful foster boy, to being Pastor Mike in their life. And so I had the chance to be their pastor. And as they passed away, I did their funerals. Wow! And I'm still connected to the brothers and sisters. And I went on to pastor that church for uh, about 20 years in Oregon. Wow. So that was your first church? Yes.
1: Okay, so you get saved by these foster parents. Um, Then you become their pastor.
0: There was a little interim where I went away for four years to Bible college, and I pastored a little church for two years. But when I came back, the transition was, now I'm Pastor Mike, uh, not a Foster Son Mike. So that was kind of a unique situation. Did you find it challenging to be... Pastor in that situation? Um, everyone thought of me as very young, but uh, they did respond well to it. By very young, I mean I was pastoring full time at 26 years old. So people would walk into the church and say, Hey, uh, who, where's the pastor? <laughs> I said, I'm the pastor. They said, No, you're just a kid. Um, but I had an old soul, I guess. Uh, I related well to elderly people, um, always have. And it wasn't long until uh, I was fully entrenched as the, the pastor of the church.
1: You became saved at, as a junior higher. You're leading this church by 26. So what was the process in between
0: there? Um, I was led to a Bible college up in Canada four years up in Alberta, Canada to a Canada. place called Bible, uh, Prairie Bible College. Okay. And, uh, the reason I went there is, uh, a guy that was working with the youth group, uh, he was going there. So I thought I'd follow him. And, uh, because I was a ward of the court, I could have gone to a public college, uh, tuition paid. Uh, but I actually chose to step out of faith, go to Canada, Alberta, Canada, and, uh, earn my way through. And so I went through four years of Bible college and ended up with no, no debt. Um, I uh, was so excited about the school that I became a staff member uh, in the summers mm-hmm. that would pay for my next school year. I traveled with a, uh, a quartet. I was a singer. And so if I would represent the school in the summer, they'd pay my whole school year the following year. So I did that two or three summers in a row. So Prairie Bible College, uh, really, really cold. Um, the joke is, I went there thinking uh, that someone told me there was a girl behind every tree. But on the prairies, there are no trees, <laughs> so I didn't meet a girl at Bible College. I had to come all the way back to Oregon to meet, a, meet my wife, Rachel. Rachel. And so you met Rachel at- back back in the same town where I grew up. She went to the same high school I did. Um, and was she part of the church? She became part of the church when Thank she became okay. my wife. She was only 18 years old when I met her and married her. And you were how old? Uh, I was about 24. 24. Yeah. When did you know you wanted to be a pastor? God gave me a verse. It's my life verse. It's uh, John 15, 16. And this verse says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and ordained you that you will go and bear fruit. And that was God's way of telling me that... He chose me out of my foster home, mm. out of my uh, dysfunctional home, and put me in a place where I would become a Christian. So he had his hands on me, pulled me off, away from public school to a private Christian college. And just somewhere along the line, I realized that god it was God's choosing all along. It wouldn't have been my choice to leave family, um, to be away from my biological family. But looking back, I could see that God meant it for good. He chose me, ordained me, and that is the verse I still carry today, is that uh, I'll go and bear fruit, my fruit will remain. So that's God's fruit. Yeah. Yeah. So you came back home to Oregon knowing your calling to be a pastor. I started out as a youth pastor for the church. Okay. I ended up, when the pastor left, they asked me to continue on as the pastor. Oh, from youth pastor to, to senior pastor. Yeah, and and that, and then you
1: have the people asking you can't be the pastor. Correct. I want to know. I want to know how Rachel felt. Was she on board with the whole marrying a pastor? Or did that take some time for her?
0: You know, she came along. Uh, we were both working a secular job, and I was a part-time youth pastor. And it kind of we grew into that. We grew into it together. Okay. Uh, she had no background. She became a Christian just before we met. and uh, But our church always viewed her as a young girl and never expected her to be a pastor's wife. You didn't have to mm. lead the Bible studies or play piano. She just had to be my wife. And because we had that from the beginning, there was never any expectation put upon her. Her expectation uh, was to be my wife and the mother of our children. And that's uh, how it's always been. Has that been a struggle to maintain that in a culture that expects a lot out of pastoral lives? You know, this is, like I said, I spent 20 years at that church and almost 20 years at this church. So it's not like we've been bouncing around a lot of churches. Mm. And so there's been the same expectation. When we came to this church, we already had a large family. And they weren't hiring her, they were hiring me. Mm-hmm. So she stayed mm-hmm. home with our kids, homeschooled the kids. And so there's not been an over a pressure on her. Uh, fortunately, uh, to perform.
1: Yeah, yeah. I really like that healthy approach. That just sounds like it's puts a lot less stress on the family.
0: Yeah, she spent plenty of her time in children's ministry and nursery, and she taught a few women's Bible studies, of course. But her her ministry is more private and less public, and I think people appreciate that.
1: you In a way, kind of like Jeremiah, you're the youth pastor becoming the pastor, and I'm only a youth. <laughs> yeah. what, what was the process like to becoming someone that people began to recognize as a mature leader they can trust?
0: The pastor we had was pretty open handed with ministry, so he had me preach once a month as a youth okay. pastor. Okay,
1: they were already getting used to you,
0: so I was already filling the pulpit and. Uh, it became more and more natural. Um, the, yeah, I also taught the adult Sunday school. I taught a, a midweek study. And so I'll, I've been involved with teaching. It was just a natural graduation uh, from youth pastor to pastor for me. You kind of had the same method. You started out as a youth guy. And now you're <laughs> it does in sound full-time very similar. ministry. And yeah.
1: in, uh, in my hometown, too. Yeah. <laughs> just-
0: Yeah, this whole thing about a hometown uh, prophet not being accepted, uh, we may be the exception to the rule because I was able to, to blend back into my own church as their pastor.
1: Were there any lessons you learned in your Christian college education that were particularly
0: helpful going into ministry? Um, Prairie Bible College was unique in that um, it was a real nonprofit school. What I mean by that is it was self-sustaining, had its own dairy, its own farm all the uh, staff were retired pastors and missionaries and they lived sacrificially. So what I observed there is the ability to live on nothing except faith. In that school you were paid according to the size of your family So if the president had two children, the janitor had five children, the janitor made more than the president of the school. It was that kind of mentality that made me realize these are men that are dedicated to what they're doing, and they're not doing it for gain. They're doing it because they believe God's called them. And so that's really had an impact on me. Uh, God has always provided. As I mentioned before, we have a large family, and uh, my wife has always been a stay-at-home mom, and yet we've lived frugally enough and God's provided well enough that we've done well, so you were taught
1: inadvertently
0: at by example, school. yeah,
1: by example, yeah, how to live on a single income a pastor's income with twelve children correct, that's amazing, correct. God was definitely shaping
0: your education you know I hear about these kids coming out of college thinking they're going to get a a big time position in church, get paid real big money, mm. And uh, I've always supplemented my income, and uh, and been content to be by vocational, um, and God's always provided. So.
1: And when you say bivocational, vocational, what are some of the side jobs you've
0: done over the years? Well, the reality it's not labor kind of work, because of my abilities with uh, my balloon creations, my gospel magic tricks, my speaking. I've been able to supplement by doing a lot of outward work in the community with the uh, schools and churches and libraries, and so I've been able to supplement in a way that uh, suits my personality more than going out and building houses or driving truck. so that's how i've that's my, my vocational is I've always supplemented with those um, hobbies, hobbies that became oh, hobbies. professions. Nice. So things you're already interested in, good at, and yeah. just found ways to use them. Absolutely. And also it's a way of connecting with people in the community. I started making balloons in 1984. That's 30, 34 years ago. And I've reached more families with the balloons than I have any other way. I meet them in the community, introduce myself, make balloons, introduce myself as a pastor, eventually end up doing their weddings, their funerals, And their baptisms and lead them to Christ, and they become part of my church because I'm out in the community mixing it up uh, rather than sitting in my office studying alone. Now, how did balloons start? Um, I needed the extra income. I saw a guy doing it in a restaurant, and I said, I can do that. (laughs) I'd already did gospel magic, and it's the same kind of uh, hand-eye coordination thing. Yeah. Okay. And so I just bought some books, and within a month I was working restaurants and making extra income for my family.
1: And you say hand-eye coordination thing. I look at those balloons, and I think, I can't even tie the knot on the end of the balloon. I get frustrated.
0: <laughs> you know, it's not for everybody, but God gave me a knack for it. Um, I wrote a little book, and that opened up doors for teaching classes all, all across the country, teaching people how to make balloons, teaching missionary hmm. teams as they're going to go off to... South America, how to make balloons so that they can have an effect where they go. So you wrote a book on how to make balloons? Correct. I've never
1: seen it. And a video. And a video? Yeah. Are you the actor in the video? I'm
0: the only one in the video.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Set up the camera and just
0: show the hands? Yeah, how to... So that's a little hobby that that God gave me that has supplemented my income enormously.
1: Have you found that being able to minister with using something as simple as balloons... Have you seen that that's had an effect on the congregation at all? People who say, I'm not a pastor, but I do something like Pastor Mike. I have this hobby and skill.
0: You know, I do a thing called Children's Corner every Sunday before I preach. I bring all the kids forward, and I do one of my balloons or one of my tricks or one of my object lessons, and I get more people tell me that they get more out of my children's lesson than anything in the church. That That's what sometimes draws them back to the church is that I'm trying to connect with the kids and the families. Um, You know, I've trained a lot of people to make balloons. and I have friends that that do the same kind of work I do. Um, So I've seen it multiplied. As Jesus said, I've chosen you that you may go and bear fruit. And I've I've had uh, the fruit of others following in my footsteps using these visual aids quite a bit, actually. So I want to hear about um, some of the
1: greatest struggles and fears that sort of shadowed you throughout
0: your life in ministry. Um, Ministry itself is fantastic. I mean, I have no reservations about preaching and teaching and leading. Uh, Probably the biggest struggle is when you have a large family is the tug of war between ministry and family. I find myself 100% in whatever I do. So if I'm 100% into what I'm doing at church, I'm not as engaged as I should be with my family sometimes, or vice versa. If I'm home with all the kids, I may neglect my church work. Mm -hmm. Um, So the tug-of-war of of family, and then to have some children that stray uh, is disheartening because you raise them up in the way they should go, and sometimes uh, they take a while to find their way back. So there's been that challenge of uh, preaching one thing and believing one thing and having our kids do the opposite sometimes how do you handle that? what, what, what do you do? with transparency I mean there's no secrets we let people know to pray for our kids and people seem to respond to that and they actually find it refreshing that I'm not trying to hide it hmm. and uh, it brings out people to say well I had trouble with a couple of my kids too and so we are able to relate and uh meet people heart-to-heart and console each other. So it's actually been a positive thing. Um, Not the way I would have chosen, but God chooses that path.
1: How would you describe your, uh, your approach, your
0: philosophy to ministry? Um, because I have a large family and because we homeschooled and we have so many homeschoolers in our church and families with large families, we drew those kind of families. My whole ministry has all been about families. Everything's age integrated. If we do an activity, everybody goes. If we do a hike, it's a family hike. It's not a youth hike, it's a family hike. If we do a a, a project at church, we try to incorporate Fathers, sons, and kids, and mothers and daughters. Um, So I've taken the philosophy that the church is meant to be the family of God. We're called brothers and sisters. Leaders are called elders. And so I, I view the church like a family. So I have a philosophy of ministry that's less like a business and more like a family. The elderly are like grandparents, and the children are all of our kids. So... I guess that's kind of what's driven me uh, to make it a family worship experience and include the kids in the service and that sort of thing
1: yeah you know when you say um, a family more family oriented versus business oriented what do you, what do you mean by business oriented
0: well some churches are so structured that uh, the kids go one way or the parents go another way the kids aren't allowed in the service everything is real structured we try to be a little more flexible and include the kids in our service uh, there's a a class you know, for them if they prefer to go they're welcome to stay in our church um, we're still business in the sense of the bookkeeping and all that uh, there's, there's elders and leaders that, that take care of that side of it but that's not my side my side is to create a, mm. an environment where people are felt welcome and, and included and that's what I've sought to do and I think that's what we've been successful at doing is forming a, a family driven church yeah and you hear people say that all the time that's why
1: they're drawn to our church yeah yeah oh, that's, that's remarkable one of the things i've noticed is um and and you've shared with me is is the way you will go visit other churches on in our area
0: mm-hmm. um why do you do that Well, as a pastor, you don't get to attend other churches. (laughs) You're stuck in your church, and I love to worship. I love churches. I love to see how people worship. So Mm. I watch many, many sermons online, um, and that's only part of it because you only get the sermon. Mm -hmm. So I like to attend churches where I can see their approach to offering, uh, communion, uh, singing. And so whenever possible, I try to visit other churches. When I'm on vacation, I may visit three churches on a Sunday. Mm. Uh, just to observe the different styles and, and music selections and I pick up ideas. And what have you picked up? Um, I guess uh, the, the biggest difference in churches is the worship style. Um, some are more conservative and some are way out there, um, contemporary and loud. And uh, I can see benefits in both. Um, So I picked up those ideas. I've I've seen how they uh, interact with their children, uh, with families. So, And I listen to the sermon, of course, because I like to see how people structure their sermons, uh, what approach they have, whether they uh, use notes or speak um, off the cuff. And uh, so I just observe and and learn and, and try to incorporate what I learn, you're always learning. Always learning. You gotta be.
1: Not never gonna say yes. I'm cemented in my ways. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's really admirable. Yeah, one of the things that sticks out to me though is I mean, you mentioned even on vacation you'll go to church up to three times on a Sunday. It sounds like you're somebody who genuinely loves the church.
0: Absolutely, Jesus loves the church. You call it his bride. Yeah, uh, it really bothers me when people or anti-the church, just like saying, Jesus, I love you, but I don't like your wife. Hmm. It's the bride of Christ. And so I love to be around Christians. And so I'll try to find two services on a Sunday morning. I'll try to find a church with a Sunday evening service uh, when I'm out and about. Yeah.
1: Now, it, it does, that attitude of, I like Jesus, but not your wife. That's a great way of putting that, by the way. Yeah, It does seem to be a prevalent attitude in um, like more of the younger generation. Um, Do you have any thoughts about that? Is there there a way you address that? I mean, and you have kids uh, that are in that age group too, so.
0: Yeah. You know, it's kind of funny. Um, My kids love to come to church. Uh, We've never forced them to go, but most of my kids show up, either at my church or wherever they live. I I, I think maybe our love for the church... uh, Has worn off under them. Mm -hmm. Even the traditional side of it, they choose the they have a chance to choose a song. They choose a hymn. Really, they they grew up with hymns, and so uh, we're a church-loving and church-attending family as a rule. Um, And then we have the grandkids too. So it's fun to see my kids and their kids all worshiping together, and little kids dancing in the halls, uh, dancing to the music. So we we love worship.
1: And um, in this age, it seems a lot of uh, ministries emphasize like mission statements and vision statements. And um, I was wondering if you had, maybe you don't have an official vision statement. I don't know. But if you had a vision that you would like to see your fellowship grow into, share
0: your heart for that. Well, I, I think this vision statement thing was a fad in the 80s and 90s because they were following the business model. The mega Evan, you know, the vision, kind of mega uh, Evan Amato. Uh, Jesus gave us the vision. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, that's what we do. We talk about loving God and overflowing and loving people. And uh, those are the two greatest commandments. So that's what we emphasize. You know, First, number one, get a right relationship with God and get it right mm-hmm. with people. And I think that's sufficient. I don't have a 10 year plan. I I just believe that if we preach, teach, do what Jesus said, make disciples of all nations, baptize them, the the vision's already been stated by God. Uh, We just need to follow through and do it. And that's all we do. I like that.
1: Yeah,
0: it's it's, it's it's great. Organic and scriptural and simple. Well, isn't that what we're supposed to be? (laughs) Biblical and simple? (laughs)
1: Area you consider yourself weak or insufficient or insecure in. Like if there's an area you could
0: improve, what what would it be? Counseling. I enjoy proclaiming God's word. I enjoy interacting with people, but I'm weak when it comes to one on one solving or trying to help people solve all their problems that they've gotten into, or their couples. Um, I don't have much tolerance uh, for people uh, who've gotten themselves in trouble and want me to bail them out. And so my weakness might be counseling. I'm not a very uh, sympathetic person sometimes. I'm Mm -hmm. kind of black and white. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, maybe I come across more warm from the pulpit than I am when it comes to one-on-one with people.
1: Yeah. 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 So, okay, so you just tend to like tell them how it is and what they need to do,
0: and they aren't always ready for that. Exactly, exactly. It's <laughs> probably the area I'm weakest at. Yeah, and I'm weak at uh, vocabulary. I, I find oh. myself losing words. Maybe I'm getting older <laughs> in my sixties now, and so I'm less uh, spontaneous when it comes mm. to speaking. I, I. I uh, tend to write out my notes and make sure that I don't go off track too far. I don't want to go down some alley and then realize I, I've, I've uh, misspoken. I see. So, so that's an insecurity. Uh, we, as you get older, you want to make sure that you're staying mm-hmm. true to the Word and not going off on rabbit trails. Yeah. So
1: so are you saying you used to be a little uh, more spontaneous, but you're finding yourself
0: needing notes a little bit more often? Mm-hmm. I think it combines with the fact that now I display notes on the uh, PowerPoints. So I've got to stick to the PowerPoints. So I have to script (laughs) things out. You're you're held accountable. (laughs) I have to script it out so that the one doing the PowerPoint can follow me. And so I find it that I craft my words and my thoughts and my illustrations more um, detailed than I used to. I used to wing it, and now I do less winging it.
1: Now, by wing it, do you mean literally wing it, or you had a plan? And you're oh, I had go a plan,
0: but I just noticed that my, my notes are more thorough today than they Got used it. to be. Got it. Yeah. Um, so, on preaching, if, if you had to
1: stick to one book of the Bible, preach one book of the Bible the rest of your life,
0: what would it be? Psalms. Why? I just love the Psalms, because they're expressions of worship, uh, confession, um, ups, downs, highs, lows. Yeah. It's got it all. And Christ is in the Psalms. So you can mm-hmm. preach Christ through the Psalms. Psalms is my favorite book. It's a book I land in more often than any on my own. Um, can you take
1: us into a little bit of your personal devotion time? Obviously, Psalms
0: and like, what does that look like? Um, I'm not a big reader. I never have been. Um, I read only what I need to read. I don't read novels. I don't read books. I don't read um, you know, anything other than what I need to to preach. I teach yeah. often enough that I find myself consumed whatever I'm studying for. That that's what mm-hmm. I read and that's what I study. So my, my devotional life is my sermon preparation and all the same because I'm thinking about it 24 hours a day. Um, so... That that's my communion is with the Lord, preparing, thinking, and uh, trying to be biblical when I get into the pulpit.
1: That's great. I, I hear some people say that you should have a separate devotional life and sermon life, but you're you're saying you're, to me it's merged. It's merged. Yeah. Which which I've always I've always thought the saying it has to be separate is interesting because I've always thought well why. Why shouldn't I be preaching from my relationship with God? Yeah. And I
0: think that's great that you're mixing it. Well, if you're preaching through, let's say, a book of the Bible, you're looking ahead, you're reading that book, you're reading that chapter, you're reading those verses, and you're just consumed by it. How do you have time to read anything else? (laughs) For me. (laughs) Right, Um, right. So that's where I land, as I'm thinking about this week and next week and the following week and how I can lay these out, these verses out. And if you cover uh, large sections, um, it's it's a challenge to be able to communicate in such a way that it it isn't boring. And I want to be anything but boring. So in a way, you preach what's speaking to you. At least you
1: know that that's interesting. Yeah. At least it was for you. It was for me. <laughs> yeah, I've heard um, I've heard authors encouraged to write what you find interesting. Hmm. And so I've always thought, well, if I at least preach something that spoke to me. It's a good chance they'll speak to at least one other person. I think so. You know, yeah. yeah. So you said that you don't, you're not much of a reader, but I know as a pastor, there are books you've read. Um, Is there, is there a book that you've read that's been very impactful that you recommend to people?
0: That's a good question. Nothing actually comes to my mind right off. That's that I probably just, a good answer then. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing that I really... I mean, I've read. Yeah. But, you know, I keep coming back to uh, the Bible, I guess. Fair enough. Yeah. It's the best book.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> and Any preachers that you tend to favor?
0: You know, I've... Uh, because I listen to so many, I've, I've always modeled my preaching after Chuck Swindoll because he's got that warm... Uh, approach. He's got doctrine there, but he also has a, a heart, mm. heart for people and, and God's Word. But I also find myself li- listening to uh, uh, John MacArthur because he's got so much content and yeah. so much wisdom. And if you get a balance between the two, uh, I think you're in a good place. Um, so I, I listen to a lot of preachers, uh, but those two I always listen to if I can. Have you ever heard someone compare you to either of them? No. No, I think I have my own style,
1: I hope. Yeah. yeah. So you wouldn't even consider yourself like them. You just like I like
0: th- them. Them, yeah. <laughs> I like great. the warmth of Swindoll and the authority of MacArthur. That's a great combination. Yeah.
1: piece of paper you have on your Bible on your lap. Can I ask
0: what that is? Well, just in case you asked me about my uh, verses and such, I wanted to not, <laughs> not wing it. Um, let's, let's go there. <laughs> well, I will say this. I'll say every Sunday before I speak, I hum in my song, heart a song. And it's not a song that's even in my hymn book. It's called Channels Only. Listen to the words of the song. It says, how I praise thee, precious Savior that thy love laid hold of me you have saved and cleansed and filled me that I might thy channel be channels only blessed master but with all thy wondrous power flowing through us thou canst use us every day and every hour um as I mentioned God chose me out of a bad situation and put me into his his ministry and so I view myself as that channel um Channels only, blessed Master. But with all thy wondrous power flowing through us, thou canst use us every day and every hour. So that is a song that that I use uh, to prepare myself to preach every single week. I want to be a channel. That's fantastic. It's a good verse. I also quote to myself a verse out of Mark that says, They went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them. Do you hear that last part? While the Lord While the Lord. It's not just them preaching. They can try that all they want. What made the difference was they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them. Um, Great Commission talks about go and make disciples. And lo, I will be with you always. And so I really cling to that idea that God is with me, that he has chosen me, that I want to be a channel. And so that is, uh, that's my heart when I go to teach and preach. Be a channel. Right. That's, that's, a, that's such a gr- refreshing
1: reminder of what you're ultimately doing. Well, amen. That's what we are called to do speed be a channel, right? <laughs> Indeed. So if—kind um, of an odd question. Okay. Let's say that these roughly 40 years, everything that's been accomplished has been erased— if this one thing out of that remained, what would it be that would make it worth doing this all over again?
0: I don't know that there's one thing or one incident, one example, but one feeling of knowing that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, there's a, again, a calling that I couldn't do anything else. Um, And so that sense of, I'm where I'm supposed to be, well done, my good and faithful servant, that's what makes it all worth it all. I mean, there's definitely disappointments, there's definitely heartaches, um, things don't always turn out the way you want them to be, but just to know that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing and that God's approval is on my life makes it all worthwhile. So even if, I guess that's answering if you were Jeremiah... (laughs)
1: <laughs> and had a lot of Boy, little food.
0: <laughs> can you imagine being called to a people that hate you and want to hurt you and throw you into a well? And um, He must have sensed a call, and he must have sensed God's favor, or he wouldn't have continued doing it. If you would, by the external circumstances of his ministry, he'd say, uh, find a different job. Uh, but that's what he was called to do, and, and that's what he was confirmed and ordained to do. And so I think he, he sensed God's pleasure uh, doing what he was supposed to do. And you feel that, and that has made
1: everything, regardless of the results, worth it.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. To, to know that I'm doing what God's called me to do uh, makes all the disappointments uh, fade, fade away. Have you ever doubted your calling? I don't think so. I think that right from high school, I knew that God had called me to do something. Um, and so it was natural decision to go to Bible college, natural decision to come back and work with a youth group, natural decision to accept the call to be a pastor, and uh, never considered any other call.
1: Is there anything uh, that we haven't covered that you, would like to, that you would like to share, anything on your heart?
0: You know, I know a lot of people find pleasure in their hobbies and their activities and their life pursuits I find that I'm the happiest when I'm standing in the pulpit with 200 people listening to me and I'm teaching them God's word and they're nodding and they're saying amen uh, there's no better, better place uh, where I find more pleasure than teaching God's word so let that's what God's called me to do. And that's what I hope I can do for another 20 years. Well, pastor Mike, thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks for inviting me.
1: And that concludes this B side. If you know a story, a person or a question that should be included in this podcast, please let me know by emailing me at the email listed on the notes to this episode. This is Pastor Brandon with Grace and Gratitude. Thank you for listening.